one of the parallels is that if you rely, let's say, monolithically on an Asian supply chain, well, there are complexities that are hidden from you, but that at some point can come back and bite you. And that has happened to us, although we've fortunately been trying to get ahead of it by moving towards U.S. production. I think it's happened to a lot of other people. So it seems easy until it's not easy to rely on a large monolithic solution. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Commerce Tomorrow podcast. My name is Kelly, and as usual, I'm here with my co-host, Dirk. Hi, Kelly. And today we're excited to be joined by John and Jeff Amash, the CEO and CMO, respectively, of Tekton. Welcome. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks for having us. It'd be great to get a little bit of background on yourselves, and then we'll get into Tekton. So, John, do you want to start first? Sure. Uh, Jeff and I are brothers. We are two owners of Tekton. A company that my dad started. And uh, we grew up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I, uh, you know, without getting too long about the whole life story, I grew up, I went to Harvard and got an economics degree. I went to Michigan and got a law degree. I practiced law uh, working as a clerk for a federal court and then at a large law firm named Kirkland and Ellis in Chicago. Did that for several years until seven or so, and then joined this company, which was um, at the time a a very different company. It was a wholesale distributor of hand tools and some other types of merchandise, um, all imported products. And we've uh, changed it into quite a different company since then. Yeah. uh, So I'm the chief marketing officer here at Tecton. Um, I went to uh, University of Michigan for undergraduate school, and I also went to law school there like John. Um, I practiced law for about a year after law school, and then in around 2008, shortly after John had joined this company, I also joined, and uh, I've worked in various roles in the company, but today I'm doing chief marketing. Okay. Um, that's uh, it's great background to have. It sounds like you've been groomed from a, a young age to take over the business, um, <laughs> respectively. Um, can you give a little background on Tecton, and, and is it Tecton or Tecton? I, I can never, uh, never uh, figure that out. It's it's Tecton, and it's a it's a Greek. I mean, I don't know the actual correct Greek pronunciation with certainty, but it's a Greek word that refers to uh, working with your hands with skill. It has the same root as words like technical, technology, or technique. Uh, interesting. So, can you give a, a founding story of the company, and um, I guess how you how you got to be a CEO and CMO, respectively? So, our dad started this company. Uh, in the 1960s, he was a very poor refugee from the Middle East. Um, He came to this country in 1956 and literally with nothing and a large family. Um, They ended up coming to um, Muskegon, Michigan, sponsored by a pastor and his wife, um, who decided to sponsor their family instead of buying a new car for their church. And um, it's a true, just American dream story. When he got here, he was only about 16 and he just worked his way up from door-to-door sales. Um, Eventually, he would sell out of his car. Um, He opened up a storefront. And he just grew and grew until eventually he had a successful uh, import and wholesale distribution business. And 
that business continued for a long time. And then uh, John and I joined, like we said, 2007, 2008. And our dad, um, he started to transition out around then, starting then over a course of several years. And the business has changed quite a bit since then. So how much, so amazing story, right? And I think we should even dig a little bit deeper, though this is a um, technology podcast, but um, everybody loves these uh, founding stories, right? So, and, and basically building building something big from from, from nothing and, and with hard work and a great idea. But, but what I'm curious is uh, how much was at your younger ages, so when you had been kids, already the business a topic? Was it something that was discussed at the dinner table in the evenings and you already understood, okay, what, what is going on here or was it kept separate? Uh, I, uh, I would say that it was discussed a lot, but not with a strong expectation that, uh, that we, the Jeff or either of my other two brothers, we have another brother named Justin, that either of us would necessarily take over the company or be in the company. But it was my dad, our dad worked, uh, long, long hours. And so it was, it was something that was very obviously present in our lives. Okay. So let's, let's dive a little bit deeper in the business itself, right? So um, you already uh, mentioned um, at the introduction, um, John, a little bit um, that the business has morphed uh, from initially wholesale model uh, and, and, and these days uh, to the direct channel. But maybe can you start, how did you historically sell the products and what had been the distribution channels and um, how was that all structured? And then maybe we can move a little bit over what has that morphed to and why and how does the business look like today? The business, for much of its history, uh, first, it was not named Tecton. It, it had other names, but most recently, Michigan Industrial Tools. And it was an import and distribution business that sold through either retail stores or distributors. The tools were of a good quality, but they were very entry level for the most part. And they were, you know, functional tools to fill a need at a relatively low price. Um, it was a success. It, it was in that model a very successful business, uh, but nothing really like the business is today. I think it it looks pretty much um, completely different today. Uh, Jeff and I were part of this, uh, you know, process of changing it into something entirely different, and it's not that either of us came in with an exact plan. It's probably rare that you have a whole plan that lasts for, you know, a decade or, or more. Rather, we just, we had philosophies about where to take the company. And what it's turned into is a company that is um, making very nice quality hand tools for mechanics and industrial technicians, industrial uses, also for homeowners, really. The idea is that anybody could benefit from a very well-made, simple, refined hand tool. I think that is one of the most classic things that there is, is a well-made hand tool. And we wanted to raise the bar for, for how you get those tools, what the tools can be, and um, what kind of approach a company in our industry can take that uh, would be more forward thinking, I think, than, than other companies 
on the whole in our industry. So we've, I think what's especially unusual about us, uh, we did along the way change the name to Tecton. It wasn't really working for us to have the long name Michigan Industrial Tools um, with the acronym MIT that alluded to the university in, you know, unintentionally. So we changed the name to Tecton, something we came up with along the way. And I think what's really become interesting about our company is that even more than much, much larger companies in our industry, we are pursuing a vertically integrated model now that is a lot to take on. And I think that we are taking on you know, pretty well so far. We are manufacturing tools, not, not yet the majority of our tools, but we're now manufacturing tools in our own facility. And that is a very important and growing part of our business. Um, we are on the whole other end of the spectrum, retailing the tools uh, through a brand that we've developed and a brand that I think has a lot of excitement around it. We know that from all the people that that write about Tecton online and that join social media um, message, uh, social media groups and so on. So on both ends of that vertical spectrum, we're taking on a very uh, significant amount of work which is to make the tools using the best possible technology, the latest manufacturing techniques, and in many areas, something that is more innovative uh, than our competitors are doing in terms of the manufacturing methods, all the way over to the e-commerce retailing, which most of our competitors do not do themselves. They don't want to uh, disrupt their channels. They don't want to take on the, the difficulty of e-commerce retailing. And you know very well that even within that e-commerce segment, we've taken on the additional difficulty of not, not simply going with a black box kind of solution, something monolithic, but rather building within our hand tool company, a, a technology company as well with, with a development team and a very serious um, you know, e-commerce development um, effort. Yeah, which makes it definitely outstanding that you're innovating on all ends, right? So not, not only on your products themselves, right? And I can just encourage everybody who's listening to the podcast to go on techdom.com. Um, it, it's great tools, right? And and I'm just uh, doing little home improvement stuff or working on the mountain bikes, um, but I but I, I, I really love your products. Um, what I... Just, just, so we, we will get to, to everything that you're doing on the other side, on the user experience and on the sales channels and where, where you're also innovating there. But what, one question I'm just interested about the business model, because you mentioned, um, John, that you also put the uh, production facility um, in the States and, 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 and others are, are sourcing probably more from, from Asia. Um, over there, do you have any supply shortages? Right, so it's a big topic from from the pandemic uh, onwards, uh, and everybody is depending on, on some things. Are you less dependent, therefore, um, on on a couple of things, or or does it also affect a little bit your your business on getting specific, I don't know, metals, uh, plastic components, and and so on? I could imagine. Yeah, so our company is definitely dependent still on supply chains. We are very seriously pursuing the manufacturing in with our with our own operations our own operators our own equipment but the majority of our product because we're in this historical transition for our company the majority of our product is still coming from Taiwan that is um, what the uh, what Taiwan and China used to be 
the uh, essentially almost entirety of our product line. Now there's this very fast growing American component where we're, we're making tools and we're also partnering with others in the United States to make tools. So to answer your, your supply chain question, yes, it, it definitely impacts us. There have been slowdowns. There have been shortages. There are also slowdowns um, and shortages with raw materials as, as well as finished tools. Um, I think that one of the lessons, I see a parallel here with what, with what the um, microservices model can be. One of the parallels is that if you rely, let's say, monolithically on an Asian supply chain, well, there are complexities that are hidden from you, but that at some point can come back and bite you. And that has happened to us, although we've fortunately been trying to get ahead of it by moving towards U.S. production. I think it's happened to a lot of other people. So it seems easy until it's not easy to rely on a large monolithic solution. That's a good way to put it. And by the way, as a CEO, I'm very impressed. And I think it's a testament that you know what a monolith is and a microservice. And I think it shows um, most people uh, just live in spreadsheets. So great to <laughs> great to see that you're uh, um, that both of you, for that matter, are, are very technical. Thanks. It's great to see you. Yeah, I think it's an important point that John made that we are, uh, of course, a hands company, but we are also a tech company at the same time. Oh. And I think in order for us to succeed, I think we have to continue, of course, in both those areas, the product development and the tech development. Yeah, yeah, well said. Um, so you you were selling through wholesalers, right? And eventually through end retailers. Why did you feel the need to go out and build a direct-to-consumer channel. And you started with Amazon, right? Um, maybe just walk through your relationship with Amazon and ultimately how you went and built your first generation direct-to-consumer channel and why. Yeah. The first time that e-commerce became a significant part of our business was around 10 years ago, a little bit more with Amazon. And that was an eye-opener for us. We, even today, Amazon is so much bigger in, in, American commerce than it was 10 years ago. At the time, it seems hard to believe, but we didn't know if Amazon was even, you know, a significant seller, you know, of hand tools potentially. Um, but we gave it a try and it grew very, very fast. And it became eye-opening, not only because of the sales volume, but it became eye-opening because we could now get direct feedback about our products. We could see the reviews, we could comment on the reviews, we could update product pages in a way that had you know, does not have a good parallel in stores. And this ability to control the experience um, was important. I mean, it, it really allowed us to iterate on what we were doing with the tools and, and what we were doing with our marketing. So we became fans of e-commerce as an approach. I think that that naturally led the way to seeing, well, what if we even had total control of the e-commerce experience? What if we could uh, change the product pages any way we want? We could set the prices um, you know, directly without delay. Now we could move so much faster. Now we could iterate so much faster and we could deliver the whole experience exactly tailored to our users the way we want to. And what turns out is that even with Amazon, although it's an upgrade over stores, you can't tailor the experience exactly the way you want to. And maybe even less so today than you could 10 years ago or several years ago. So the opportunity to do that ourselves with our own e-commerce site was, I think, very exciting to us. And 
that's what brought us to developingtechton.com. And what would have happened if you didn't build a direct-to-consumer channel? Just looking out longer term, you know, are you seeing a lot of private label competitors from retailers that you're sold through? Like, what's the make the business case for it? <laughs> why why own the relationship with the with the the customer? I think that the agility and iteration point is very important is that you can make fast decisions about what uh, about bringing a product to market and what you're saying about it and what its price will be. And if necessary, you can change the price and which all of which comes with a lot of experimentation potential if you need it allows you to take more chances that are not very damaging to your business, uh, which you can't do with any retailer that is not your own company. So I think that is uh, very important. I, uh, the, we've been able to make a, a more uh, multivariable kind of experience than you could with any retailer. So for example, with Titan.com, it's not only you can get the tool and you can get it at a good price. You can also participate in our rewards program, which is very simple and um, I think simple but unusual in that you just get 10% back on whatever you buy and you can use that money any way you want, like cash. There are no real restrictions on that. So that's actually been a very important part of the loyalty that we see from the from the user base. It's also multivariable in the sense that we can control the support experience in a way that you cannot with any other retailer, whether it's Amazon or stores. So the fact that with e-commerce, you don't just have one lever or one variable with, with your own e-commerce, with a direct-to-consumer model, you don't just have one variable or two that you can control. You have many variables that you can control, I think is very significant for your ability to move fast and to run your business profitably with minimal risk. Yeah, I'd add that owning the connection to the consumer has really uh, pushed us to improve our product line too, because we hear, this is related to the agility point, but we hear so directly from the users now what they like, what they don't like, um, that it has really pushed us to make sure that we put out the best thing possible uh, on the, in terms of the site itself and the products as well. John, maybe can you take us through that, that journey? Because before you got to the point that you get all of the customer feedback and you can incorporate that into the product, right? So I think once you, once you took the decision to build the brand Tekton and launch Tekton.com as a direct-to-consumer channel, right? It goes both hand in hand, right? You, you need to leverage the brand, right? So you need to build out the brand. And on the other side, you're creating this direct-to-consumer channel that's then constantly growing. But but how do you manage and leverage both of that, right? So and, until you got to the point where you are today, right? I think every, so at the beginning, uh, what comes first, right? So the direct-to-consumer, right? So how do you get the customers there or building the brand? And, and what was your journey from a marketing perspective, maybe? I think that the e-commerce, I don't know if this is going to address your question. I hope it does. I think the e-commerce experience is part of the brand. Uh, the word brand is very broad. And I tend to think of a brand as simply a symbol of an experience, a symbol of a, of a memory of an experience. And so 
we don't just sell tools, although our tools are exceptional and really well made. And I think that the fact that we're getting into the manufacturing of the tools and we've long been into the design and engineering of the tools pairs extremely well with e-commerce because you have a place now where you can tell that story and where you don't just have to operate in one or two dimensions of, of price or photograph. You can you can you have much more of a tableau to, to work with in terms of telling your story. But the other part of the brand, which is a product of ours, is the e-commerce experience. How fast, how easy, how highly functional, how fast and easy is the site to use? How highly functional is it? How well does your you know, account history show up and, and everything else around that? Um, how much can you learn about the product is, is a part of our brand. It is our brand as well. And it's closely related to why we're working with the platform that we're working with commerce tools and some of the other technology choices we're making because we wanted to make the thing. We don't just want to borrow someone's, you know, black box kind of solution. Making the thing is one of our products and an essential part of our business. Yeah. Good, good that you're saying that. So I don't know, maybe, maybe Jeff or, or also John, right? So let's, let's dive into that, right? So you, you already mentioned uh, us commerce tools, but maybe let's take even one step back from a technology perspective, right? So what have been the principles or decision guidelines that you said, okay, this is how we were selecting the new technology. This is what we want to achieve. And then how did that lead to what technology have you actually chosen? Um, maybe you can take us through that journey. John has mentioned some of these points, but we really were looking for something that was flexible, uh, performant, of course, robust. Um, we really wanted robust APIs with a lot of functionality. Uh, we do have a dev team and they were involved in this process of searching for our basically our tech stack and what we would go with. One question. So, sorry for interrupting because this is super. I, I, I said, so please go on with that. But but maybe you can explain. Normally, when, when companies start or at an early process, they just say, okay, just give me something in the box that's working. Where, where did you gain the knowledge that you said, no, that this will not be flexible enough for us and suit our needs? So where, where, where was that coming from that you already had been, I would say, two steps ahead of, of, of the market, maybe. So when we first launched our, our e-commerce site, we were on uh, NetSuite's platform as CA. We use NetSuite as our ERP, and we think it's great as our ERP. And it was a really, it, it served us very well uh, for, our, for our initial site launch. That was in 2016 or so. Um, but over the years, as we continued to grow, and the site became a bigger and bigger part of our strategy and our sales, we would regularly run into certain roadblocks in terms of maybe it was performance, maybe in terms of functionality that we wanted to add um, for more than a year or so, two years, we wanted to add Apple Pay and we couldn't come up with a good way to do it. Um, that kind of stuff just continually frustrated us. So we knew that as we make this such a key part of our future, we need to be in control of what's going on here. And that is what led us to looking at alternatives. And as we looked at it, you know, we did what I think a lot of companies would do. We really looked at as many alternatives as we could. We looked at Shopify. We looked at Magento. We looked at uh, Big Commerce. We looked at a lot of uh, companies like this and different platforms. 
But we kept coming back to, like I mentioned before, the desire to have really robust APIs, uh, a really flexible architecture. Um, I knew that our um, our developers wanted to be able to build the Next.js-based site. Um, and that really drove a lot of what we were doing. We wanted modern languages and frameworks. And that drove a lot of the decision-making there. It's even more impressive that you did everything in-house. Um, I mean, we don't see that very often, especially somebody at, at your size. You know, sometimes we'll have companies with three, four billion in GMV. Um, but you've got a really solid team. So if they're listening, kudos to you all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and uh, Jeff, yeah, for, you, uh, for you building the team. Um, but how did you how did you enable your team to go out and build a, a very modern experience? Um, you know, the Grand Rapids area doesn't strike me as a hotbed of a, you know modern tech. It's not the Bay Area. You know, how did you get your folks all skilled up and give them the confidence? And how long was that journey from start to finish and the implementation? Uh, yeah, the journey was it was well the research phase was six to eight months maybe. But the actual development part was probably about five months. Um, And we really, like you mentioned, we have a team that is excited to work with modern languages and architecture, and they're great. And we worked very closely with them to build that out. Um, We didn't want our technology to be our limiting factor, and neither did the developers. And so I think all of us were motivated by that to build out this site and the the tech stack the way that we did. Yeah. And did you do any courses? Did you do any training? Um, did you have any consultants who helped you or did you just have your team go do it? <laughs> uh, no consultants. Uh, I believe there were courses that have, you know, that the developed developers would take. Um, they did rely on, you know, support from partners who worked with like commerce tools and others uh, at different times. And that was very helpful to them too. And there's just a lot of learning along the way, to be honest with you. Um, and when you have people who are just genuinely, genuinely curious and motivated, uh, they can achieve a lot. Yeah, we have, we have great developers. They they're, and, and we are very particular about hiring in general across our company. So I think, I think they really are high achievers. Um, they did a good job. I, I, I would just add philosophically to what Jeff said that there is a thread that runs through our company of taking on difficult things. And that includes our branding work. It includes design and engineering work of the hand tools themselves, whether it's wrenches or screwdrivers. Um, and, and now increasingly in the last couple of years, it includes the making of tools, developing the manufacturing methods and bringing in the manufacturing equipment and the operators to make tools actually using methods that I think are often much better than our competitors are using. And I really believe if you're going to be profitable and people are going to pay you for your work, you have to do hard, important things. Otherwise, that you are maybe a go-between, essentially. I mean, there's nothing wrong with go-between work, but you have to understand what you're doing at any given time. You can't expect to be paid a lot if you're only doing easy things because there's something you know logically that doesn't add up there If in terms of how a market works. If you want to be profitable and have people pay you 
a good amount for what you're doing. I think the thing you're doing has to be hard and important. And I think at the same time, it often turns out that taking on something that is very challenging, and this is true of manufacturing or design or software development, is not as hard as you fear going into it because you're making the thing just for yourself. And so it's easy to be to look at a huge company that spends um, an enormous amount of money to make a piece of technology and say, well, that's daunting because we don't have anywhere near the number of developers or the, or the dollars that they have. But they're trying to make something generalized that is necessarily overbroad and sometimes under-inclusive. And when you can make something for yourself and you really know what you want and you have a close um, connection between the, the business principles and the brand and the technology development, I think it can go much faster than you you know you might fear going into it. And we found that it went pretty fast. That was something that we predicted would happen that it would go reasonably fast because we knew what we wanted and we were, Jeff and I and others were working closely with the developers. And so I'm glad we took it on and, and did not try to do something easier. Yeah. Well, clearly what you're doing is working both on the uh, manufacturing side. I, I had the pleasure of uh, taking a tour, so that was great to see and uh Thank you again for that, and uh, you know, clearly on the e-commerce side as well. Uh, any uh, final words of wisdom for our listeners as they embark on similar journeys? I think that what you just said about um, you know being paid for doing hard things is really uh, a good lesson, and I think it's an important one to remember that um, nothing great is achieved unless it had difficulty with it. Well said. Great final words. Thank you both for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.